Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler, and today I have yet another amazing conversation to share with you. This time, I had the opportunity to speak to a chess legend. His name is Lev Albert. In his earlier years, he was a three-time Ukrainian champion. Uh, In 1979, he moved to the United States in the heat of the Cold War and became a three-time U.S. champion. He's got an amazing story and amazing history. And in addition to being a chess grandmaster, he's also the writer of over a dozen amazing chess books, timeless books uh, for people of all ages interested in the game. And he's also a coach and is still coaching to this day. Uh, He has a ton of knowledge to share. Uh, He's a real legend of the game. And I had a really great time speaking to him. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy this episode. So please, without further delay, Enjoy this conversation with Lev Albert. Hey, Lev, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a true honor to have you on the show. Uh, thank you. This is my pleasure, Patrick, and uh, I would make kind of a short presentation so people would know me a little bit or better. Of course, if you have any kind of comment, question, addition at any moment, please feel to j- jump in, to interrupt. I welcome sure. it, it to make it more like a conversation than presentation. And of course, we later would obviously we would be discussing things together and uh, so, so basically to introduce myself you know my name is Lev Albert and uh, I came here from Russia it was 1979 I was Soviet citizen I played chess abroad and I asked for political asylum in Germany and came to United States by education I'm a scientist I'm I graduated from Odessa University in theoretical physics, which is basically mathematical mathematical physics. And then I was working at postgraduate work for several for, for, for a couple of years. And um, I was always a very good student. I was straight A student both in school and in, in college. And I get, I got so-called red diploma because I was heading straight A's. But I wasn't really, but uh, I was a very good student, but, but but not really good scientist because in my case, I was very good at learning things. And then passing the exam or exams, and then when the subject was of no immediate help for me, I was very good at forgetting it. Um, <laughs> so, so for instance, uh, you know, I was doing some kind of work in theoretical physics I work on superconductivity and lower temperatures, those complicated fields, formulas, and so on. Today, I would hardly be able to explain what is what is logarithm or what is integral. And, uh, and it's not just today. I wouldn't remember it 30 years ago when I stopped uh, you know, working in, in the field of theoretical physics 35 years ago. Um, 
So my father was very, um, I was a good student, but not a very good scientist. And uh, I, I liked the, the, the world of science. I had many friends there. I knew some very, very top scientists, uh, great names, Nobel laureates. Uh, I didn't know Lev Landau, but I knew his associates, close associates, Brother Lipschitz and Akademischen Ginsburg, with whom I remained friends for many years since. And uh, uh, they like uh, to come to Odessa, which was like Miami, it's, it's a resort on the Black Sea. So the, uh, the top physicians from Moscow, from other places in, in Russia, they organized seminars in Odessa. And my professor and I were playing host, so we were welcome there always. In addition, they had great respect for me, both great minds, great scientists, but also their young associates, people of my, my age approximately, because they all play chess. And I already was a strong chess master. Really, I was one of the top 30 in Soviet Union, which means I was one of 50 in the world. And they knew Super great name, really. David Gaza, Gaza, I knew people like play with, with Michael Tal, I play with uh, David Bronstein, I knew Michael Botvinnik. So for them, I was, you know, for those my colleagues, I was almost like uh, a great man. So they liked me and they wanted my company. So I was exposed to their company. They were brilliant people, brilliant young people, brilliant older people. And what I really realized quite soon is that well, I enjoy their company. I enjoy their jokes, and they joke my, my jokes, usually anti-Semitic jokes. But that I never would be like one of them because I didn't have this gift. I didn't have creativity in physics. I also didn't have, you know, to be a real scientist, at least in physics, you, need, you need to have curiosities, like Einstein wrote about it, that what made him, you know, help him to discover the theory of relativity was his curiosity. I never had this curiosity. I, I was good at again, learning something, exp, you know, repeating it, and maybe, again, not necessarily forgetting about it. Um, so at some moment, I decided I will, uh, I will switch to chess. I got very good financial offer in chess, so I would be doing some teaching, but also mostly concentrating on my own play and try to become a grandmaster. Uh, so I switched to chess. I did it regret it. Uh, and uh, as soon as I began to improve, improve in chess. Speaking about my chess career, it was not really very spectacular. It wasn't something like I never was a child prodigy. I learned chess when I was five years old. My, it, it was kind of common thing, like I was sick with some childhood illness. My aunt showed me how pieces move. Then my father, who was a decent chess player, showed me how to move with purpose. Then he, he, my father's friend, who was a chess expert, showed me, you know, some theory and so on. And when I was seven years old, I made my first category. And I continued playing quite well. But again, I didn't become a child prodigy. I was good, but not great. And uh, then, then it may be of interest for people who are involved, who think about self-study, whatever. Sure. I, I became like category A player, which was quite hard. Like today, it would be like a master. Then I was stuck in this. My friends and peers, kind of, who were on my level, they overcame me. One of them at master. I wasn't even an expert. I was category A. And I stayed within category A for like three or four years. But I, I didn't give up chess because A, I love chess. And B, I really believe that, uh, you know, 
sometimes in, in chess, but probably does a profession as well, you don't develop in the one straightforward forward line. Some people do, but most people develop by leaps and bounds. So I said that in me, I accommodated uh, knowledge. I was thinking what, what can help me to kind of break through. I was reading books, I think good books. I try to watch stronger players. If possible, I try to contact, uh, to, to work with stronger players. And then when I was 18, I might realize this breakthrough. Within one year, I became an expert. And within the same year, I became a master. I defeated my first grandmaster, who was Soviet champion, Lev Polugayevsky. And I almost, like by half a point, I missed, I almost qualified into Soviet championship, which was like top 20 players in the Soviet Union. Wow. playing uh, uh, with all great world champions, I was like by half a point. And since then, I was always playing on quite high level. And then somewhere around uh, year 72, when I was like 26, I I make it as a, not jump, but substantial improvement. Um, partly because I begin to work at a time, not formally work, but, uh, but I became friendly was a great world champion, Michael Botvinnik, the sixth world champion, which probably was most one of the greatest figures, probably the greatest figures in chess at all. And I learned many ideas from him, mostly general ideas, how to study chess, various studying techniques. I learned many good, interesting things from, from Botvinnik, which can be helpful not just in chess, but in general. For instance, how to remember things which you want to remember. And we had special system developed, of course, we, there were no computers, but I would say I have a position which I would remember, I would put it on the wall, on the fridge, and keep it there for a while. Or I put some position in the file, and if I didn't solve it, say, I would put it in a special file and then come back in a month and see if I can solve it in a month, and, and so on and so forth. It had a quite well-developed system of training. and. Uh, I also develop a number of systems myself, like for instance, um, I developed a system of self-evaluation, which was very helpful. I evaluated myself uh, in the following way. I, I started very broadly and not, try, not trying to be precise. I said, let's say zero is very beginner and 10 is you know, the world champion, who at the time was Bobby Fischer or later Anatoly Karpov. So I would say, okay, Let's say zero is beginner and 10 is even stronger than Fisher. Somebody is stronger than Fisher. Um, so where, where am I? Let's say I would put myself, I, my rating is let's say 2600. I would put myself five. So I'm, on average I am five. But then I said, okay, how is my tactic? So I put oh, tactics, I'm slightly better than five. Okay, I put myself six. Where is my strategy? Probably five. Where my endgame play? Well, 5.5. Where is my opening knowledge? Well, probably 4. And uh, so this was, of course, very first approach. And then I start to differentiate. Uh, like, okay, my opening is 4, but what does it mean? I do play with black dubious openings. Mm, it's a minus. Uh, but those openings I know very well. Uh, it's a plus, so it's let's say the quality of openings would be three, but my knowledge of opening and my ability to create something new, preparing for the game, and then during the game, 
would be maybe even seven. So it's uh, uh, my next step was I asked several of my chess friends, and this was very kind of probably helpful in other fields as well. It's always good, I think, in most fields to work with someone else, a friend, uh, to exchange ideas, uh, to, to ask for honest opinion and so on. Maybe in chess also to play tra training games like what we did like to play. I did, I couldn't do it well, but I think did very well. So I asked my friends to evaluate me in the same way without showing them my own self-evaluation. And then of course, when they evaluated me, I compared, we discussed it, I evaluated them, and then we try to evaluate our opponents and try to prepare for opponents. Okay, I'm good in this area and he's good here. How can I achieve positions which benefit me and not him? By which move order, by which opening and so on. And this, it, this was really very helpful for me. This was very helpful for me. Can I ask so, uh, course, how, how you... What inspired this system of, you know, it's very interesting here that you developed a system first for yourself for self-evaluation, then you went to friends for their evaluation, and then what you're describing now, this system of evaluating your opponents. What, what inspired that system to begin with? Do you remember? Well, well, in general, it's good in chess to understand yourself. And one of the best things you should do in chess is to, let's say, when we finish a game, in Russia and Soviet Union, it was really a must to analyze the game immediately with your opponent. It wasn't considered to be a courtesy. It was really something which both opponents usually like to do. We wanted to understand what happened in the game. We wanted to learn on our mistakes, and maybe on the mistakes of our opponents, in order n n n not to repeat those mistakes. And of course, when you analyze your own games, sometimes yourself, sometimes with the help of your coach or friend, well, you try to make, uh, to draw some conclusions. It's not always easy to draw conclusions, but let's say if, uh, if in, in, say, the game after game, um, I have a possibility, I still say, I have an opportunity to create a strong attack by sacrificing a piece, but uh, okay, I'm not willing to invest time in this because I was afraid to get in time pressure, I decided, oh, no, it's too risky. I may acquire move after which I would be on a slightly better while the sacrifice would be winning. Okay, I would make a mental note and next time I have similar situation, I would be more eager, more inclined to go and, and try to consider the sacrifice and calculate it and so on. So I would, I would, I would, I would, I would draw a conclusion. I would learn from my, from my previous mistakes. It's not like my idea. Like great champion, world champion, Hazeka Pablanka said that I learned from my mistakes from the game I lost. I learned much more from the games than from the games I won. Sure. And he didn't, lose, he didn't lose many games, he lost all the few <laughs> games, but he definitely learned a lot from them. And of course, he was uh, a from other sources as well. He was a born genius. So, so, but I think I was, to some extent, I would say that my physical education was helpful to me. It was a total waste of uh, time. Probably if I knew uh, how my life would develop, I would, you know, I may not spend so much time on physics and uh, spend more time on chess, but, uh, but my physical background helped me in the way I approach things in life and approach things in chess. 
kind of scientific approach. I try to to you know to to look at sources. I, I pre prepare materials, uh, in, in, uh, and uh, I consult uh, consult with other people, and um, um, uh, and also. Uh, uh, so, so, so again, I was I was able. Uh, uh, another area which I also learned a lot from uh, from my science background is the area of statistics or the area of theory of probabilities. I always in life think in terms, not always, but often in life think in terms of probabilities. And they apply greatly to chess. Like, for instance, I look at the position and see I have two moves. And here's a real-life situation. Let's say, imagine I'm playing... I'm playing in some tournament like World Open, and I playing it's, it's the last round, and I'm I'm tied with my opponent. Uh, if the winner would take thirty-five thousand um, uh, dollars, if you make a draw, several people would catch up with us, so we'll take like seven thousand dollars. And if some of us lose, it will take let's say. $2,000, which would barely, barely pay for our expenses, hotel, travel, and so on. So many people uh, in such a situation, if you play equal opponent, especially if you play black, or if you play white against slightly, uh, slightly stronger opponent, then you would take a draw. You would say, look, you know, I'm tired. And usually in such a situation, you're already tired after a long tournament, or maybe not long, but very exhausting tournament. So I'm... When you take the seven thousand dollars, pocket them. Uh, okay, man, those expenses are five thousand dollars in five days, and go home, enjoy life. And here, if I would lose, I would be so disappointed. I would barely make things even. And but, but statistically, I know that it makes sense to play. Maybe I would lose in this tournament. I would lose once, but probably I would win twice. And this would even if it would once. And draw once and lose once. It was better than make three draws. So I, I, I have to play. So the knowledge of statistical really give you kind of boost, psychological boost, would make you make easier for me to play. Second thing, within the game itself, you mentioned again I'm playing say white, this last round situation. I'm slightly better with white. And for instance, there's a situation where I can say that let's say here I can change queens. I can go into very quiet end game where I'm slightly better, but where my opponent, who is a good player, probably with good play, would hold. There are almost no chances for me to lose, you know, unless I will have a you know, heart attack at the board. There's no chances for me to lose, uh, practically. Uh, I would have maybe like 20%, 2 out of 10 chances to win, and 8, eight out of 10 would be draws. It's possible. Now, I have another move, which keeps the queens, and I would even sacrifice the pawn for the attack. Well, attack might succeed. It looks promising. But it's also there are some elements of risk. Maybe he will keep the pawn and would be even better at the end. Let's say, giving probabilities, let's say, now I have maybe five chances out of ten to win. And there would be, let's say, three chances out of ten to make a draw. But there would be two chances out of ten that I would lose. Well, again, some people in such situation would say again would play safe. Again, for me, it was easier to evaluate chances 
more in more scientific, more detached way, not so emotional way. I just I don't want to agree. With, I just want you know, I want my. It's very nice to get my seven thousand and so on. And and if you just mistake, make mistakes, then I would I would win. But uh, I don't want to risk to win. And in sure. my case, I would say, okay, what's the risk? I feel the risk. I the risk is so great. I will, I would take the risk. This is how probabilities help to me. And later, I would try to use those probabilities uh, in chess. In fact, in some way, I came ahead of current computers. Uh, in other words, they introduced a system of evaluating position with numbers long, long because computers were even relatively strong. I wrote a book about it, what's called, called Test and Improve Your Chess, published by in England, and then I rework it and publish it myself and build and grab your chest. And my idea was, I was not simply, you, know, you see, before it, usually in chess we used evaluation like white is better, white is much better, and so on. Or we use science. Plus over equal means white is slightly better. Plus over minus means white is substantially better. Plus and then minus in line meant white is almost winning or winning. And I decided to replace it with numbers, like from one to ten. Five is equality. Ten white is winning. Zero well, zero for white. Black is winning and so on. But I not only use the numbers, but I also try to put some meaning in numbers. In other words, why? Wait. I, I, yes, I try to connect it with probabilities. Like, for instance, in the opening position, white is better. How much white is better? Well, here we could use statistics. Let's say on certain level, on master level, out of 100 games, the result would be two equal players playing match of 100 games. Would the score would be 55 to 45. So starting position, I give it for white 5.5. Again, I didn't try to be exactly precise because you cannot be exactly precise. Today, we can use computers to check us. In those sure. days, if we, would, if we would start analyzing my game and then on certain moves, spend, spend, hundred, spend hours and hours trying to find out if, I'm eight, eight, if, I'm, if I have 5.8 or 5.9, I wouldn't do anything more useful. But it's still, so it was certainly not a science. But it sort of was something better than simply plus over equal, plus over minus. It has some meaning. And uh, I also was using, uh, started making graphs. So when I look at the game later, I can just see or someone else to whom I show the game. Or when they show the game, his game to my student, he would be able to see his game in a graph. Or here, you know, here you make a mistake, here your opponent make a mistake in turns. So, on. so I'm just I'm just telling it because it kind of connects my physical background and theoretical physics with my uh, background as chess player, chess writer, and chess teacher. Yeah, that's amazing to you know to see how you were able to take that scientific approach with your game at a point where you know like the tools you know are so much different then versus what they are today. Um, because I think today anyone could probably, you know, uh, very easily, uh, you know, develop graph, you know, have graphs or have, uh, an understanding of the probability or the effectiveness of their moves. So that's, uh, you know, interesting to hear how you're able to pave that system, you know, without the technology. 
And I would recommend uh, for people to do it and uh, to have uh, to make graphs or to make use computer to make their graphs. However, I would also recommend to players of all levels, and this is not just my recommendation. Same thing has been recommended recently by great world champions like Vishanant and Vladimir Kramnik. That when you know you, it's good to use computers, but it's not. Uh, but computer should not be your master. Sure. You, you, your guru computer should be your assistant. So people who only use computers, who just uh, analyze their games and just push buttons, or here make a mistake, or here should have played there because computer says so, are making a mistake because after all, when you play a game, you have to think on your own. No one, no computer would think for you. So what what I always recommend to say my students or my friends or my readers to do, let's say I always say analyze your games is very important. But first time, analyze the game yourself. Don't use computer. Look at it yourself. And then you can make a graph or you can make simple notes. Then check it with computer. But again, check it creatively. If computer says that he is not, say, point not 6.1 but 6.2 it may well it may it could be interesting to see what the move computer shows which is a little bit stronger but it's not a must and you, you should have basis move because maybe computer has something in mind which is really almost beyond your reach maybe it's a combination of or kind of line 20 move 10 move deep or something so you, you look you should look for human moves the move which a human would make in this situation Use computer mostly for for what? First of all, you use computer for checking. I mean, checking the quality of your analysis to avoid blunders, to to avoid missing blunders. So, if you lie, if computer was saying he is 6.0, and then suddenly it became 8.0, hmm, so probably your opponent made a mistake. And then if from 8.0 next half move it becomes six again or 6.2. Well, it probably means that your opponent make a blunder, and you didn't see through the blunder. So this is an interesting moment. Otherwise, how I use computer mostly, and how I suggest you to use computer is mostly to to get ideas. You don't sure. have to follow them, but to get ideas. So, for instance, I always, time permitting, look for games played by usually by great players like recently was big tournament in Norway was which Magnus Carson won, and I would go look at games. I would try to guess myself. Then if I see position is interesting, I would go to computer. I would have it built in, and I would ask computer to give me, well, computer will give me evaluation, and also suggest a move or a line. And I would say, oh, it's interesting. It's, would it be something I, I can find myself? If not, if yes, why did I find it in my first, say, five or ten minutes? And then also, again, with some, not all of them, but with some big event, like this Norway event, I would also go to some, you know, to some site where great players analyze the game, like this Norway tournament was Vladimir Kramnik, former world champion, one of the great, greatest players ever. And another was also one of the greatest players ever, uh, Judith Polgar uh, from Hungary, uh, who was for many years, among top 10 players in the world, both men and women. And their analysis were superb, so I certainly greatly enjoyed them. So I, I, have been, I look myself, I check with computer, and then 
not necessarily the disorder, but then I was hearing analysis of Polgar uh, and uh, Kramnik. See, uh, I'm curious um, to sort of like, you know, go back to, you know, sort of this timeline of, of uh, your playing and your career, because, okay. you know, sort of at the height of it was also, you know, your uh, move to the United States in the midst, really at the peak of the Cold War, um, you know, between the Rus Russia and the United States, what, what was, how was chess intertwined with the sort of political atmosphere at the time? Well, chess in Soviet Union was certainly used for political reasons. Everything else was like Soviet ballet, for instance, and Soviet, uh, the Soviets try to impress the, uh, the outside world with their achievements in certain areas like chess or ballet dancing or some sports. And uh, they try to present it as achievement of their system, communist system. Uh, which certainly, well, uh, which was obviously one of the reasons why I wanted to leave the Soviet Union because I always, from my early childhood, I hated the system. As majority of Soviet people hated the system, Solzhenitsyn wrote it's like 80% of the Soviet population actively hated the system. I was certainly one of them. I was seven years when Stalin died, I was 83, and it was the happiest day of my life, and still is. Wow. The second happiest day of my life was 20, August 21st, 1991, when it was when Gorbachev regime and Soviet communism collapsed, so-called coup collapsed. It also coincided with my birthday, so I was kind of doubly happy. <laughs> and uh, at the third, it was not really a day, but several days, and it was in 89, where one communist regime, satellite regime of the Soviet Union, after another in Eastern Europe was collapsing, so at the time, it became more or less clear that the Soviet regime also wouldn't wouldn't be able to survive for for, for at least not, not more than a couple of years. Uh, so, so that's why uh, it was certainly difficult for me to leave Russia because I love the country. I still love Russia. It's next to the United States is my second most favorite country, and uh, um, uh, I also had family. I had friends. I, didn't, I wasn't married, but which would be additional, you know, obviously impediment to leaving. But I have friends, relatives, and parents. It was, um, you know, it still was very, very difficult to leave. Um, uh, but I felt that uh, I have to go, like, uh, I have to go to my side. I have to fight the communism because at this time, the Soviet communism was not only very bad for people inside the country, for most people inside the country, but also was very dangerous to the rest of the world. So I felt it my obligation to go to the right side and keep fighting, which I did when I left Soviet Union and eventually came to the United States. I immediately got in touch with people like uh, Sharansky. Well, he was in jail, but I got in touch with his wife, Bukowski. I corresponded with Solzhenitsyn. Uh, and uh, I was trying to bring together American anti-communists with with, with us, uh, people from former Soviet, people who were able to leave the Soviet Union. Uh, and my chess, uh, I play in chess, but I also, you know, I didn't want to be a paid employee of one of those organizations. I want to help myself to be independent. So chess, I also love chess. So chess helped me to be independent. 
And even if necessary, travel on my own to various anti-communist meetings and so on. Um, and uh, I, I travel all over the country giving lectures. I was playing places like Harvard uh, Russian School and other places like that. I also travel the country to give chess lessons, but I also have a scale like when I would give a chess lesson at the same, say, Harvard uh, or, or Princeton, I would charge for chess, event for chess exhibition, I would charge like $1,500 or $1,000. But when I would go to the same place to lecture on politics, I would charge two hundred dollars or two fifty or really whatever they would pay me, and I would, and if they wouldn't pay me anything, just simply I live, you know, even there and drop by, I would try to combine both. I would go for chess event, and then I would stay and uh, and take part part in the some seminar or give a lecture on on Soviet affairs. So it was, uh, so I was I was quite successful in chess. I was. Uh, I, I didn't think I never thought I could become a world champion, and uh, I never really tried hard, you know, to try to become the world champion or, well, say, the second in the world to play the match for world championship. It, you need to, unless you're a genius, and I was a genius, you have to give up everything else. You have to study chess like 10, 12 hours a day, like Fisher did, or Korsh they did after he defected to the West. Uh, and even this wouldn't give me any kind of guarantee. It would give me a small, really a small chance. So I thought I would reach whatever I can without giving up my normal life and without, of course, giving my anti-Soviet activities. So I became U.S. champion. I was U.S. champion many times. I won three uh, uh, invitational U.S. championship. I won two U.S. Open. I was several other U.S. Blitz, U.S. Active Chess, and so on. Um, I was probably a number one U.S. player in the 80s, or number one and number two together with Yasser Saravan. Mostly Yasser was more, ex ex Yasser was, I think, dominant in Europe. In those days, he qualified twice for candidates, which is top eight in the world. I never qualified, but I was more for the U.S. champion than Yasser, so we kind of divided the field. Yasser was the best American player outside the United States. And probably second in America, I was second best outside and first in America. But again, not like we we were not counting those results. Because Yasser and I always have been friends, even we were competitors so often and play very competitive games. He he won several games, I won several games, but we always remained friends. And let's say when I was running for United States Policy Board, Yasser was supporting me, and when he was running for some position in Chess Federation, I was supporting, for president, I think, I was supporting him. Um, so, uh, again, I was playing quite well, but then when it was, yeah, I think it was, yeah, then I became, last time I was one U.S. championship in 1990, very convincingly, uh, with very good score. I was 40, I just turned 40, was 44 years old, and I didn't want to quit, but, uh, you know, I uh, I kind of got tired of traveling to Europe because if you want to play chess professionally, there were many tournaments in Europe, uh, so you have to go to Europe. Also, it coincided with the end of Soviet Union, so I was looking for, for something else to do. Uh, some of my Russian friends decided to, you know, to go back to Soviet Union, or to, to, uh, to New Russia, 
or to make some business with Russia. I was kind of not so interested. Maybe I was wrong, but I was, um, but I was kind of happy. I make my victory dance. I lectured several places on that house of it. Union ended. I was very happy, very very happy. And then I would begin to think, what else I could do with my life? I like to teach chess. I had always, while I was playing, I still had a number of students. And uh, I decided, look, let me teach, let me teach chess, and let me also write about chess, which also I like. And I began decided first I wrote a couple of books for other publishers, uh, but then in mid eighties I became publisher on my own. Uh, it happened like I had very good book submitted to me by my friend and former teacher in Russia, Roman Peltz, uh, who lives in Canada. And I offered those books to Basford, and Basford, they like the books, but they want to change them in a way both Peltz and I consider to be wrong for the purpose of the book. It was good from publisher's point of view, but wrong from our point of view, from point of view of the readers. Um, uh, so we decided, let's, let's publish book ourselves. And then Roman had some other interests to where to invest money. So, okay, so I decided to do it myself. So I became a publisher. And I decided to continue the series. Uh, with uh, Roman became involved in many other projects, so he wasn't able to continue the project, which was to write a full course, write to, to publish a full course from beginner to master. Uh, we published only two first volumes with him. Uh, and then, so on Roman's, yes, and on Roman's advice, I decided to invite other really good, really great co-authors, grandmasters, mostly, but not only grandmasters, to write with me new volumes. I like to work with someone usually. I had uh, other grandmasters working with me. I had some American excellent writers like John Crumier with whom I did my last book about Volship Picture Match in New York. I often work with Al Lawrence on many of my other books. So I created this course, Comprehensive Chess Course. And it was for me very kind of like, it very well, it goes like hand in glove with my teaching work because when I write those books, I have in my mind in front of me one of my students and I had probably thousands of students during my life, many of them one-on-one students. So I have those students in mind and I'm trying to put in the books what would be helpful to people like them. And then when we work with a student, and I learned something from him, or what was helpful to him here or there, or I, I often make a mental, no, no, it's interesting. It's something I should introduce in, in say, the new edition of my book. So it's really how it did work for me. And well, one thing that was interesting that I you know, I uh, actually read about in a Bloomberg article with you is how you've taken this, you know, your, seems like your skills in teaching and your knowledge of chess and applied it to other realms uh, of, you know, whether it's the business or financial world. Can you tell me a little bit about how that, you know, got started and how, how you, you know, uh, sure. I wouldn't uh, kind of, I wouldn't kind of exaggerate it. I would say that certainly certain techniques uh, which chess player has can be helpful in many other areas of life. That's why I think that if a child likes chess, I think it's good for any child, boy, girl, to learn chess and play 
for pleasure. And if the child is gifted, maybe to hire a teacher, to work with a teacher, just if a child is exceptionally gifted, exceptionally motivated, he may become a chess professional. If he is not, he will probably sometime, maybe in college, maybe after college, stop playing active chess. But it's still the thing which he would learn from chess, certain habits, he would learn from traits, uh, techniques he would learn from chess would be helpful help to him in life, like the way to be. And those techniques and traits are quite obvious. As you know, it's big chess teacher has to be objective, chess teacher has to be to respect opponent, but not to be over of by opponent. Just learning teaching has to, to work with materials, with, with literature, with, uh, with sources. Just teaches us to self-analyze, like analyzing games and so on. Just even teaches us to work, to work with others. It's really something I always try to uh, almost impose on my students, because some people just like say two two kids i have say you imagine like two ch- children who, who both are like uh, good for their age but not on the very top like in the first in the second percentile of the age in america and they tell you the little guys you should work together and they're friends in life but they're reluctant to work together because i think each of them thinks okay i would play him at some moment and he would use it against me and I'm telling them, look, guys, you know, you shouldn't be concerned about uh, to be ahead of each other. There are thousands of players who are now stronger than you. You should be thinking about how to get ahead of them. Only if you would become number one and number two in the world, or at least close to it, when you would become number eight and number eight, six in the world, then you may begin to think that, I, oh, I should not show him this idea because he can use the against me. And such things happened, like Alihai and Capablanca, they were very good friends, but then, of course, they became two immediate competitors. Uh, unfortunately, they had a break. Korshna and Karpa were very good friends. When Korshna became a ch- real challenger, opponent to Karpa, they, at least for some years, they became enemies. But then they became friends again, almost friends again. To some extent, the same was true for Kasparov and Karpa. They never were friends, they have, you know, different age groups and so on. But they were sort of bitter enemies when they were competitors. And now they, they became, they, their relations are quite good and at least quite civil, to say to say the least. So, it's, I guess it's one thing we can also learn from chess, that uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the art of, 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 of cooperation, that you all often can cooperate with someone, not being afraid that he, 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 that your you know your friend your partner will become stronger than you. Again, it's more important that you as a group, the two of you, become stronger than others. This should be this should be more important. And uh, as far as financial world, well, it simply was probably coincidence because um, Bloomberg wanted the magazine Bloomberg wanted to write a column about uh, chess and financial world. I guess some of my students recommended me to them. And uh, so they started to put a time more, and when I was interviewed by Bloomberg, they started to pay more attention to my 
financial students than to my students, say, from from the world of politics or from the world of uh, arts, which I also have. Or simply, you know, people who not necessarily even, you know, from who, who really doing a lot of different things. Uh, you know, someone uh, used to have a student who, was a, who, who is a policeman or firefighter or a fishmonger, <laughs> all kinds of students from, from all from, from, from all, all walks of life. Every discipline and, can benefit. Yes, and people enjoy, people play chess, the adults, the children, the men, the women. The, uh, but I certainly did have a number of students from financial world. Uh, and uh, there's a certain thing in the world of finances, which is, which has some degree of similarity with chess. That, for instance, uh, especially, and this was not just my idea, it was the idea of, uh, of one gentleman, uh, um, Norman Weinstein, who was just a very strong chess master, international chess master, I used to play him, but who also was working for, I guess, some financial company, maybe Boston Trust, in the mid-80s. And he got the idea that the chess master, chess grandmaster, should be good in trading, in trading stocks or trading commodities because it's kind of like a chess player. You have to make quick decisions. It's like playing blitz. You have to make quick, intuitive decisions when you have little time and when the kind of uncertain problem is not like problem which can be solved. You have to guess. But if you kind of have good intuition, and you decide with a good intuition and have some knowledge, you will probably more often than not guess correctly. So he makes some advertising, put some advertising in chess magazines, and he hired a number of chess players, including the most famous of them was my good friend, Maxim Lugi, who was at the time quite young, maybe like 20 years old. Um, at this time, he was world champion, among, uh, world champion uh, in under 20 in the world, and he, he began to work for this company, and some other people began to work for this company. Some of them stayed. Lugi was quite successful. So the idea really paid off. The, the, idea, the idea that a chess player, a chess master can be a good trader, uh, a, 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 a good trader re, really paid off. The other, the other thing which uh, where chess can be of assistance to uh, our system to uh, you know to 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 finance here, but again I wouldn't I wouldn't carry it too far. I wouldn't say that you know you uh, if you improve your chess for two hundred points, you also then your portfolio would also improve. And you know it's a story. I, I, after this after this uh, after this column in in in. Um, um, in Bloomberg, I got maybe like 50, 60 calls and inquiring about lessons. And many of them, you know, high percentage of them, maybe like 40% uh, of those people who called, they took lessons. Some of them stayed with you for years, some of them still with me, at least occasionally. And, uh, uh, and I, didn't want, I never tried to sell, you know, snake oil, I never promised things. Uh, but I remember one funny conversation, uh, which I've mentioned to you. Uh, I got a conversation from a very pleasant person, a really very pleasant person in his 50s. 
even something close to people's background, I guess, because parents came from uh, the same areas as I came from, from south of Russia, from Ukraine. Um, and he is the head of some fund, which I heard about. And he told me that he plays chess a little, but he also has two associates who also play chess. And they're like, not beginners, but close to it. They like rated, one is rated 1200, and he himself is kind of 1600 player, so quite quite stronger. And he told me that after reading this article, he felt that it would be a good idea for him that he doesn't have time, but he wants his two associates to take lessons from me, that he would be paying for them. So, so we basically agreed for everything, for the way he would be paying and so on. Uh, and what I should teach them, uh, and what qualities he wants to develop in them, so which direction I should teach them, it was all fine. And then he told me, Lev, of course, I understand that you cannot give me any guarantees, but, but you see, at this moment, we have returns like uh, 8.5% for our investments. I would like to move it uh, to 10%. Do you think that if they would take lessons from you, and let's say if they improve within half a year for say about 200 points each, it's uh, UCF rating, but this would mean that by the end of the year, another half a year, their the, um, uh, the returns of funds they supervise would move from 8.5 to 10. And I told him, look, it's really something I, I certainly cannot say. There are too many other factors. And look, I, I even cannot guarantee that they would uh, improve for 200 points each because it depends on their talents. It also depends how much time they would spend on just outside lessons. It depends on many factors. But uh, but this, at least, I can, I can make a guess based on my experience with other players of his, their ages, their current strength, their background, I can make an intelligent guess. If I would see them, I would probably make more concrete guess, more intelligent guess, closer to reality, how fast they would improve and so on. But I said, look, you know, I to say I'm not really expert in, in your field, so I can really, I think it would help them to be better, uh, to be better financiers, to be better hedge fund managers, but to say that they would improve the performance of your fund would go from eight and a half to ten, well, I cannot, I cannot say. So uh, we laughed and he eventually decided not to try, which probably was right. I mean, I, I, I can certainly say that I can see how, you know, any just understanding of the game will certainly help uh, with in different ways to, to look at the world. Like you said, it, it can work for really any discipline. It's not a guarantee, but certainly can help benefit you in any any walk yes. of life. And it also can be enjoyable. So I think, for instance, going from adults to children, I often ask, some people would ask me, uh, should I teach chess to my child at what age? And I tell them, look, I learned chess at five. Capablanca learned chess at four. I heard cases where someone learned chess at three. But in my case, but in, but in, my, but in my position, I would give following advice. Uh, when your child is say, two and a half, three years old, show him chess pieces or let him see you playing someone else. If he would be interested, show him how, you know, some 
very basic things, how certain peace move, how king moves. If he would uh, like it and understand it, show him how to make checkmate with, say, king and rook versus king, checkmate and one. If he would like it, again, show him more. If he wouldn't like it, put chess aside, come back to them in half a year and see if he or she would be interested in half a year. So, but even if child saw it first, went to teach. And then if, when the child would start, don't try to push it on him. Don't make it, uh, don't make it, you know, like a must for a child. Show it to him if he enjoyed, let him do it. If, if, if he doesn't enjoy it, you know, again, set it aside, maybe come back to it in a year, another year. And then if you see that he really doesn't like chess, but likes some other activity, be it physical activity or some or some other games, intellectual games, let him do it. It's, uh, chess is a good game, but it's not a must. It's not something everyone must know. Sure, sure. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, you know, if there's any sort of, uh, you know, asks or requests, are there, are there any, you know, words of advice you'd have just for the general audience if they're, you know, interested in, uh, you know, uh, sort of picking up the game, applying it to different areas of life or, you know, really anything that they could sort of take away from this conversation that, you know, you think uh, is really critical? Well, uh, one thing, if someone likes chess, there are many ways now to watch chess on various websites. Uh, I certainly would recommend uh, to join the U.S. Chess Federation. It costs very little. It costs probably like $30, $20 for children, I think 60 or something, 70 for adults. You will get a monthly magazine, Chess Life, where you have many, it's like big magazine, like 100 pages. You, you probably would find something of interest for you in those pages. You also would be able to play on their website and to play in their tournaments. Uh, you can go, it's, uh, it's called Chess, uh, United States Chess Federation, USEF. And the magazine is called Chess Live. You can, I'm sure you can find it on the internet. If you, you also can find a chess club in your area and go to the club. Uh, today is probably not so easy because some clubs are still closed, but hopefully it will, they will be open soon. And so you go to local club. You find there the same magazine which I mentioned, Chess Live. You can browse through it and decide if you like it. You also would meet chess players and you will find out if it's a company you would enjoy. So if you enjoy, you can enjoy the club and go there more often. If you enjoy it very much, you can go to the club and play there in over-the-board tournaments. Today you can play online. You can play using your own phone online. You can play with computers. You can play with humans. You can play even with someone who lives, you know, in Australia. So, so, so this is... Uh, oh. This is something you, you could, uh, any of your listeners can, can certainly do. I would certainly recommend, uh, not because it's my book, but because it's really a very good book for someone who wants to start or want to continue. There is a book uh, called uh, Chess for the Gifted and Busy, which I quoted with a Lawrence. You can find it in any bookstore or you can order it on Amazon, Chess for the Gifted and Busy. It's really, I squeezed, I, the Lawrence, we squeezed my entire course, almost my entire 17-volume course, we squeezed it in one volume, really for gifted and busy, and covering chess from very beginner up to the expert level. It would be really a very good and easy start 
for for a busy for, for a busy person. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, I just uh, want to you know, uh, if someone wanted to get in touch with me, you can give my email address, or you can simply go to look for Lev Albert. It's on the internet. And uh, uh, but but again, you know, you, in chess, you, chess is beautiful in the way that you know you, you don't have to make big investments to to play chess. You can you know you. You, you can simply you can practically do it for free so it's which makes just more difficult you know an, an easy game at least to start than many, many other games where you the equipment this and that in chess it's much it's much simpler that's good. you know definitely one of the best parts about it is how accessible it is how practical it is and uh you know really just how beneficial it can be to uh you know integrate the ways of thinking from chess into your daily life, your profession, whatever you do. And Lev, I, I really appreciate your time today. It's been it's amazing talking to you. I, I hope to have the chance to speak with you again in the future. And for the audience out there, uh, you know, your website is chesswithlev.com. You're very accessible on there. It's, it's really amazing uh, how much information you're able to share both in your books, your teachings, and, uh, you know, in the other interviews and articles written about you. So I appreciate being, you know, you being so accessible there and sharing all your wisdom and knowledge. Yes, uh, the best way to reach me would be also very simple email. It's GM, GM stands for Grandmaster, GM Lev Albert at AOL.com. It's the best way to reach me by, by email. I would immediately reply. And if, uh, and again, I certainly enjoy it. And, uh, uh, and, I wish, and I also like, we didn't have time to talk about it, but I certainly like the idea of, of learning without going to college. I'm not against colleges, but I think that a lot of things can be learned outside college or instead of college. So I like the program what you're doing and I wish you good luck. Thank you very much. And maybe we can pick that up for a, for a part two someday. With pleasure. With pleasure. All the best to you and to Thank your you. listeners. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.